Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right. Thanks, guys, for joining me. We've got a small little crew in here. What is today? Wednesday is one of our off days, so we don't normally come in here. But Jeremy, man, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for uh, trying a third time to make this happen. All right. <laughs> That's all Those good. time zones are crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, and the key thing here is, is um, this is out of your time. So, um, you know, any, I appreciate any time you can give. So why don't we start with the, you know, the usual, just like, what do you do? You're a senior environment artist, and that usually just means not character. So, so yeah, basically, yeah. A little more detail into that. What do you do? So, so I'm a senior environment artist. I basically build environments like mainly in AAA, you're not really um, building the props per se. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times I'm working with designers and level designers to try and make sure that the overall experience works for everyone. And like all of the features that the designers are building kind of all work together and mm-hmm. then have like an environment to accompany them. What's a designer? A level designer? Yeah, I guess. You so, said you work with yeah, yeah. Right? yeah, so a designer can be anything from like building a feature in a game. Like, what would be the best way to explain this? It's tough, right? I mean, that it's such an amorphous job description. Yeah, it can be quite broad. It can be anything from like, so a designer can be designing crafting, for example, or like how a loot system works mm-hmm. for an open world game. But level designers are primarily looking at the overall experience of like a single player mission or a space that has beats and how those move forward with each beat. Is this a downbeat, which is like no combat, or is this an upbeat, which has combat? And then I'm there to kind of build on top of that and push the experience forward visually and to help interpret their work. So it's like a, it's a big supporting role, basically. And we're all supporting each other. Got it. And um, when we're talking about that, are we talking floors? Are we talking interior, exteriors? And the reason why I'm asking this is uh, partly what's the angle for students? Because I know you actually do a lot of uh, training too, and, and we're sitting here in a classroom full of students. Right. But do you focus on interior? Do you focus on exterior? Do you focus on terrain, texturing, substance? So being, being a senior environment artist in AAA, you tend to specialize quite a bit. AAA in general kind of becomes more specialized. So like like I was saying earlier, I'm not necessarily building the props, yeah. but I may suggest what I what props I might need and mm-hmm. or would block them out and then hand that off to someone who is specialized in making props. But it's interesting because depending on the studios you're at, it can become quite open. And when I say open, I mean like they can kind of give you ownership over a lot of things. So mm-hmm. as someone getting into the industry, you may be given really simple things or you're given maybe medium difficulty things, but then you're supported by someone like myself. And then as you move forward and up into more of like a senior role, then you're being given a lot more like control over what you're doing. And so, for example, right now, I would do like the layout of the space, maybe with a level designer to make sure that it's accommodating the game experience. Right. And then building out the space visually, buildings, terrain, maybe I'll take a first pass on the lighting before Mm -hmm. giving it to the lighting team so that they can look at that and then kind of make their their decisions because maybe because i'm not specialized in lighting maybe i won't know how expensive i'm getting so i'm more or less going for the overall visual look 
And I'm like, oh yeah, that looks cool. And then I hand it over to the lighting team and then they tell me that it's way too expensive, but then they try and like incorporate it to look the same or close to what I was doing, but within the boundaries of the platforms that you're shipping on. Has this been a shift that's happened recently where the senior environment artist, it almost sounds like you're a a bit of a, you're a level designer as well to a, a large extent. It's become pretty broad. And I, so when I was in the US, I started in games in 2007. And from there, I was an environment artist from the beginning, but I wasn't given very much control. And I don't know if that's, I want to say that's just kind of the work culture of the US. And then as you gain experience and your Mm -hmm. title becomes higher and higher, you you go from intern to junior to mid-level senior expert. And there's a few others that can can go up from there, depending on the company that you're at. Mm -hmm. But in the US, it's, it's very structured. And where I'm at now in, in Sweden, it's it's much more about like everyone's just trying to make a good game. So if you're interested and you're eager and they trust you, they're going to let you try it out and see how it goes. Got it. And that's even at the junior position. Yes, actually. Yeah. All right. So you've been doing this 12 years. Yep. Yeah, it'll be uh, 12 years later this year, which What's is the, really weird. Do you ever sit back and think like, oh, my God, I'm going to I'm going to be an old dude doing this, you know, because oh, dude. <laughs> Yeah. No, that's just that's just how it is, right? Just, yeah, we started all, <laughs> Yeah, we started all young. You know, I mean, I started this young and now I'm like 45 and I'm like, "Oh, crap." Like, oh man, I didn't know that. You don't yeah. you don't come off as 45. That's good. I am. I am. And you know, I'm looking around and I'm like, "Is it still cool for a 45-year-old to be <laughs> <laughs> like doing this?" Oh, that's great. <laughs> it's only because you know, when you become self-aware, then you're like, "Oh no." <laughs> yeah but thankfully avengers and star wars are all cool again so we win yes yeah very true so what's been one of the biggest shifts that you've seen in the 12 years that you've been doing this i think is actually tools are starting to get out of the way if that makes sense it does actually yeah tell me more about that though when i was going to school trying to get ready to to become a dev there wasn't any way to like talk to developers when I graduated high school, I think it was 2004, and YouTube was just starting to be a word. And I think Polycount was the only way you could access anything as far as the industry is concerned and, and maybe connect with people that are in games. And then the tools were like, I, I think it was 3DS Max for me. That was it. And I guess Bryce 3D and Rhino. Yeah. Like way back. And then as school was going, school switched from, from 3DS Max to, to Maya. And I was forced to switch with that. And then just because, you know, you got to keep going, you got to do the education. So I was in Maya. And then when I got into my first internship, they were a mix of Max and Maya users. So I was like, oh, and so I'm starting to see like already. And this is, this is quite early. This is 2000. That was 2007. And they're just like, both are developing on two different softwares. And they're kind of pushing the same content in the end into the game. And it just kept going that way. And then Every studio I went to, it was like, okay, I can be in Max in this one. I can be in Max in this one. And then when I get to Sweden, they're just kind of all over the place. You've got people that are actually using Blender. You've got people that are using Maya, Max, Moto. I switched from Max to Moto. And that's when I started to realize, like, you have people chasing tools. I noticed this pretty early on with people that are learning 3D is they're chasing the tool. They're like, oh, man, this tool's the next, it's like the next big thing. And it's once you kind of get... Uh, quite comfortable with the tool. Like I was pretty comfortable with 3ds Max because I think I was in it for like five years total before I switched to Moto. And that switch is quite quick. 
I think I was able to switch to moto in like, I don't know, two, three weeks, maybe where I started to feel like I didn't need to go back to max to do things that I couldn't figure out how to do in, in moto. And that's when I realized like, oh man, the tools are all kind of the same. And it's more like mastering one tool is great because then you can just actually focus on the art craft and like making things look good. And if you're in that position, all that's happening is you're growing as an artist because another tool will come along, maybe it'll make things faster. And if you learn that tool, it's just a matter of getting comfortable with it. It's like getting comfortable with like sculpting tools in, in, in the physical world, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, once you understand that, you can see people that sculpt in real life switch to ZBrush and they're immediately, they have like a, a one-up on people that are just, just learning through ZBrush. Totally. So they, they've got a lot of the classical learning behind it. So yeah, I think tools are just kind of getting out of the way and they're getting easier and easier to use. So you're starting to see people that are teaching themselves how to do game art from home through YouTube. And they're, they're already getting internships with just a portfolio that already looks better than what I had when I got out of school. There's this, there's so many more resources and just everything is just better, yeah. better and easier. But yeah, I think just tools are getting out of the way. And the people that have a really good eye for art or the people that learn like the fundamentals of art in general mm-hmm. start to just kind of click with stuff easier than everyone else. That makes sense. Just chasing a tool. <laughs> yeah. Now, is there any tools that you think we must be chasing? And I asked because, you know, yesterday I've opened Houdini many times and I've looked at Houdini and I've been like, oh, and then close it. Yeah. <laughs> and last night I opened it and I, and I played around in it and I was like, I can't, I'm in love. This is pretty awesome. You know, and that's a tool that, you know, you hear people talk about and then you hear people talk about designer and all of that. So, you know, are these tools, are there some tools that we have to chase or no? It's interesting because my personal view on Houdini is like, if it's you by yourself, it's very difficult to just use that by yourself at home. It doesn't have very many facets of of opportunity, I guess, to help speed things up at home. I did a video recently on like creating a a model in ZBrush. And then I've already set up the node structure in Houdini to uh, you just give it the ZBrush file and it outputs in like a few seconds, the low poly with the bake unwrapped and everything for you. So it just does it all. You do the UVs as well? It automatically. Yeah, I've seen the UVs. So it's doing everything automatic. In Houdini and it's, it's like amazing. It's unbelievable. But like when it comes to the development, when you use that in like a production situation, like at a studio where they're trying to build a world, yeah, that's when Houdini really shines. And I think the people that are shouting that Houdini is like the next amazing thing are the ones that see the benefit of what it does for like large scale production. Right. So a lot of games are going open world currently and yeah. making those worlds is becoming difficult because they get really, really big. And any way that you can cut that pie to make it easier to, to eat, right? If you can have it create that content really quickly, it's going to be much better for everyone. And the game will look better. And yeah, it just becomes easier to develop a game on a large scale. You're talking about procedural modeling and procedural terrain generation and and things like that, right? Yeah. And um, wasn't Substance supposed to take care of that? So Substance does a lot of the material aspect of it. And Mm -hmm. you're seeing like a huge boom currently in like material artists. Like they're all all over the place. Yeah, I mean... Ben Wilson, for example, I don't know if you've you've spoke with him yet. That guy's materials look like uh, like photogrammetry scans. Was Ben his most one of recent the first stuff? People to do this or no? I th- so the first person that really like blossoms to the public. It's really weird because developers never used to get like the limelight. Yeah, and now we're kind of becoming more 
I wouldn't call us superstars, but people start to recognize the name like a specific totally. artist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh Lynch really stuck out. Yeah. He kind of is like the tip of the spear and essentially has kind of molded the, the how everything is kind of moved forward. Mm-hmm. And like Ben Wilson, for example, he's really good. Daniel Thiger is also mm-hmm. insanely good. Yeah. And I, I really like Daniel's stuff because he's thinking outside of the box. So he's someone that looks like he's he's taking substance and using it for like material research and development. Like he's just yeah. kind of making stuff up. Oh, nice. But uh, getting in there and playing because he knows. He yeah, knows he's playing. He's, he's thinking like substance. Right. And it's interesting because that it's relatively new still. I would say it's it's just now the ripples in the water are starting to calm down. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really uh, kind of taken a hold and it's its own department now in large scale games. And I mean, even outsourcing as well as like just generating large libraries of materials is quite profitable, actually. You mean from a, um, a content creator perspective or do you mean within a studio? Both. I mean, so within a studio now you can you can become a material artist or a mm-hmm. surface artist. Yeah. Uh, all the studios kind of have different names, which is a sign that the, the department is quite young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everyone's kind of coming up with names for how they think it'll work in their production. Yeah. But then when it comes to like freelance, you can make large libraries and put them on Gumroad or put them on ArtStation and in their uh, store feature and just mm-hmm. start going to town on it. And That's people cool. buy the stuff, buy the boatloads. <laughs> awesome. We interviewed James Raitosa a while ago and he did a, um, a class. He was set to go to college and bypassed college and went straight to, oh, it wasn't high res. Maybe it was high res. But anyways, he got right in as a texturing job and he he interned at Allegro Rhythmic. And then next thing you know, like early 20s, 343 Industries, no need for college. He's making his bank now. I don't know how much he's making, but he's, you know, he's in five. He's doing he's doing good. And this is all he does. All you know, he creates these materials, does all this. Before this, he had a whole library of gumroads of materials, and he was just selling them for like a buck a piece. But it all oh, really was, yeah. That, it was just he's just using that to get his name out there and help people see what he could do. And then that landed him in three, four, three industries. But the crazy part was no college, just you know, he did an internship, so that probably helped. But beyond that, just working his ass off, learning this stuff, and doing it. Yeah. So it's interesting because I won't ever talk badly about schools, mm-hmm. but. Schools give you the opportunity and the time to sit there and, and practice the craft, right? right? And if you can find that time and are self-driven to do that at home, it's essentially the same thing. And then the only thing that you're missing is uh, feedback from your peers, right? which is like one of the main reasons I had started the community that I have. And then I assume why you're doing what you do is like it, you give people a space and they just they do what they do. And mm-hmm. the ones that are self-determined will just open right up. Yeah. And I'm kind of on the other side of that because I will gladly talk badly about schools. Yeah. <laughs> because, because for me, they fail artists and, and I take it personal because as an artist mm. and as somebody who, you know, I, what is it? I went to, I was a night restocker at Costco. I worked in a bookstore. I worked in a coffee shop. I bagged groceries. I was a roofer in Kansas for a day and got heat stroke. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That was not fun. Uh, Do not be a roofer in Kansas on your first day of summer coming from Alaska. Definitely not the (laughs) ideal thing. But college doesn't prepare people, I think, for the financial and the skill base. And it's not their fault. It's for me, I I know why it's, it has to do with the regulations and the structures and, you know, there's reasons. So no Mm. fault of theirs. It's just, it's just problematic. That done and said, though, you do have an incredibly dynamic 
community. So tell me more about that because we've got a couple of questions. I think Josiah wanted me to ask you some questions about your, your work and some of that. So I'll dive into that. But for those who don't know, Jeremy, if you look here, just go under, you can just Google this URL, Dynasty here, and uh, you guys can figure, you can learn more about it. But you have a really dynamic community going on. Yeah, that got crazy. I was not yeah. anticipating it to go that direction. <laughs> so, it's one of the most uh, dynamic yeah. out there, actually. I mean, I'm in several discords and yours is just It's awesome. really active. Like yeah. we've got people giving critiques that are like pages long. People are even making PDFs now because it's easier <laughs> to, to send a PDF link with feedback. So can we link the Discord? I can yeah, do no, that. Totally. I mean, this is a, the, here we go. Yeah, we can go straight to the site. Oh, you got a URL for it too. That's right. I forgot about that one. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier. And we have a podcast now too, which is being ran by Alex Bedos. He really wanted to make a podcast. I'm like, man, I wish I had more hands because I would love to make a podcast too. Yeah. And there's just no way. So they're really interesting because conversations come up. It's it's just fun. But yeah, this thing that we call the empire, which was Mm -hmm. coined by them, by the community, was just me starting to stream again. I streamed, I think in 2009, I started streaming. It was before Twitch really took off. I think I was streaming on Blip TV and I was streaming StarCraft. So I was playing a lot of StarCraft. I do. I was really into the whole community aspect of it. And I saw a big community behind StarCraft. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, I'll just stream. How do I do this? I'm going to stream in the mornings. So I started streaming in the mornings. And I was like, I'm not streaming long enough and I want to do it for more time. Yeah. So I started waking up Monday through Friday, three hours early to stream before getting ready for work. And I was already working on Shadow of Mordor at the time. So I was very busy. <laughs> so I'm doing that for three hours in the morning with commentary the whole time and then going to work. After that, I, I stopped because I got really like into what was happening at work. And then when I got the opportunity to work in Sweden, there was a little bit of downtime when I was waiting for the work visa. And so mm-hmm. I started streaming art again. And then fast forward to being in Sweden, the work-life balance here is really good. The government limits legal amounts of overtime, which is oh, quite wow. interesting. So with all this free time, I was like, oh man, I need to start like trying to push my skill. You know you're talking to a game artist when they say the lack of overtime gives you free time. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> because other people just call that my time. You know, normal. Yeah, it's like <laughs> your lifetime. Yes. Yeah, dude, it's so true. So I, I've got all this free time all of a sudden, which is what you're supposed to have, right? Outside of work. Yeah. And uh, I decided that I was going to start streaming to force myself to work on my skills outside of work. So I was like, all right, I'll do something that is kind of uncomfortable and it'll force me outside of my safety basket, if you want to call it that. And Mm -hmm. I just kept kind of going and some people were showing up in chat and then people started regularly showing up. And then I noticed even when I wasn't streaming that they were in the, the Twitch chat talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, all right, I'll just, I'll just make a discord. And a few people joined that. And then it just started climbing. And it, at first it was quite slow. And I think it was January. We hit 2000 people. That's crazy. And it had already been running for like two years. Mm-hmm. I want to say two years. Yeah. And now we're about to pass 3000. So it's gone from 2000 over the course of like a little over two years mm-hmm. to from January to now gaining another thousand. So now it's like really like scaling up and there's, it's crazy how many industry people are in there. That's like actually a, one of the at least was... at least a hundred deaths at least. Okay. Yeah, that I thought was very powerful because I heard about it from Chris. Chris, 
Mr. Radsby. Oh yeah, Chris Radsby, yeah. Yeah, so I did an interview with Chris, you know, because I was looking at his level 80, 80 level, I always say level 80, 80 level, and I was looking at one of his tutorials where he just builds these things super fast, and I'm like, my environment artists have to see this and have to talk to this guy. Dude, and, that guy uh, works smart, for sure. Oh, God. And beautifully, like, you know, I just love the, you can see it all, it's great. So we, he started talking about you and your podcast and your uh, Discord and all that stuff. And he's like, I'm in there and I'm commenting and, you know, all that. So that's just, to me, that's a wonderful thing. But now the question is, you don't teach either and you don't have any gumroads that I know of, do you? Well, I started doing the mentorships, but I don't really have any gumroads, no. Yeah. And then um, where do you do your mentorships? Yeah. That is through the gumroad, but I only display them when they're open. Right. So they disappear rather quickly. So I started and, doing that and that's really fun as it's, yeah, I, it feels good, man. It feels right to show people stuff. Good. And that's what I was kind of, that was my next question because, you know, you have a good work life. I'm sure the place that you're at pays you quite well. So, you know, it doesn't sound like that's about the money or any of that. So what's the important part of teaching for you? So right now I'm a senior and I have an interest in leading a team at some point, yeah. just because I feel like I could do better for the team if I can just chase things for them and make sure that they have everything that they need in order to push themselves as far as they can go. So by doing the mentorships, it also benefits me because I have to learn how to talk to people. I don't think I have too much of a problem with that. I'm very like open and maybe a little over conversational, <laughs> but it helps me learn how to talk to people that receive what I'm saying differently. So I have to like cater what I'm saying to support the way that they're learning. That's so great. if I can learn that stuff, that will really help me whenever the lead opportunity arises because then I can lead a team and then be able to listen to all the people that I'm leading and understand where they're coming from and be able to communicate on in a level that makes sense to each person. Because mm -hmm. you can't just like blanket, blanket a statement and expect it to hit everyone the same way. You know, that's actually one of the rewarding things for me is figuring out people's brains and what they need mm. next, you know? What yeah, you it's forced is... me to be very analytical as well, like really analyzing what, what they're showing me and trying to break it down. Good point, because when you're doing it as an artist, because I run into this even with the artists that teach classes with me, sometimes they can't really explain things well. They can demo it, but they can't explain it. It's different when you have to explain it. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Like tangent just... lines and like when stuff is too close to other stuff, like why is that? Why does that feel weird? It's like, well, I don't know why it feels weird, but it feels weird. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Versus maybe when you have to explain it to somebody, you have to provide some theory. You have to talk about composition. You got to talk a little bit about how people yeah. perceive. What do linear elements mean to somebody who's perceiving them? One of the things we talk a lot about in the boot camp is just bevels and how just bevels in and of themselves and props can make somebody think, well, this is a cheap knockoff or this is a toy or it's authentic. And just getting to authenticity is like its own special craft. Yeah, based on the bevel size and whatnot. Uh -huh. Yeah, you know, and, yeah, and bevels are crazy. Like you got here with the welds, you know, and you got different be that bevels here, like this looks very authentic to me. But if you don't get those, if you don't get the merger of these things in there, then, you know, it looks like basically it's some, some kid's toy. Yeah, there, there are definitely, there are very specific elements that you have to nail, which is why a reference is so important. And it's so funny because when I think about it, when I go back in time, I'm like, man, everyone that was ever trying to teach me anything was always like, just bathe in references, just mm -hmm. drown yourself in it. Because 
when you look at stuff that's in in 3D, it's digital, right? So there's already this weird kind of disconnect. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that makes it connect with you as if it's more real is the subtleties that exist with the things that we've looked at our whole lives. Like, you know what a pipe looks like. You know what, like, uh, like what a door looks like when it's attached to a building and just how stuff is structured together. And it's those subtleties and even the things that are on the subconscious level, which is why I think PVR is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Like roughness. Roughness is is adding subtlety in the way that lighting is perceived across the surface mm-hmm. for every pixel that exists in that roughness map. So like any details that you can push through there to break it up, like tricks your brain into thinking how real it is. So looking at references is, is insanely important. That's a good point. In fact, that way, and let me look up one of my students' works, Cody. One of the teachers had this crit for Cody. Let me find that's his new project. Here you go. All right. So I think that's the, yeah, that's the room. So people that came in, they gave a, a, a crit on, on this. And they were talking about, like we were just saying about the linearness of this and nothing kind of breaking it up or changing its shape. It's, it's a little bit too linear and it's all leading us down into this kind of, well, you know, no Yeah, it's way. leading you to that corner, yeah. Yeah, and there's basically nothing there. I think in the concept, there was, uh, you could see through. And so there was like a terrain, there was something back there for the eye to look at. All right, um, yeah, so it was all pointing there to begin uh, with. Yeah, and then uh, the comment that uh, that was had on this is that all of this, these vines, they're all the same. Yeah, they don't kind of vary too much in in length. There are a few spots. Yeah, and there's the same amount in shade as there is in the light. And I think it would grow more in the light than it would in the shade. Yes. And I missed that as a crit. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, well, of course, that's logical. (laughs) I get that now. You know, but you just, you're in the mix. And you know from doing environments, I mean, this is, he's worked on this for a long ass time. A lot of moving parts you you know you miss stuff like that yeah and it's it, that's when it, it comes to like the community that you surround yourself with to like point out these things before they've gone too far and yeah. like they're ready to be done with it because i know exactly what that feels like you work on a scene for way too long and you're like okay i need to just i need to be done with this <laughs> even if it's not as good as it could be yeah you just gotta move so there's not a lot of work here for 12 yeah, years I've been, tell me about i've that. been scraping stuff away so i've left some stuff here, but like Shadow of Mordor, I left before that ship, so I don't feel comfortable like saying that I worked on that game. Okay, interesting. Very much, other than I was part of it at one point in time. <laughs> okay. But I guess I just put stuff on there when ArtStation started to take take shape, and then I just haven't done, I haven't posted personal art on here so much more than like that cobblestone breakdown. Yeah. Yeah, with the Division, Division 2, those are some of the more recent stuff that I've was working on i do actually need to post more division two stuff like everyone's like dude when are you going to post more stuff (laughs) and i'm just like i'm not even really in i think maybe it's because of where i'm at now being a senior i feel comfortable and i'm more interested in like pushing myself artistically and then in my in my personal life and then making sure that the community that i'm running are all being pushed the goal is like okay let's let's make them better and try and get them jobs yeah. Like I can't directly be like, you should go work there. Or you should work there. What I want to do is have you choose where you want to work and then help you cater what you're doing to head in that direction. That's great. To but yeah, I, de- I definitely need to post some more division two stuff. 
because there's a bunch dude there's like i don't know 100 photos oh my god <laughs> and i wow. think i think there's only like four in that or four or five in that first one okay yeah that is great that's exactly with the boot camp that's exactly my in fact i mean that's i feel like we're kind of you know we're on the same wavelength there because it's like jobs have been my thing for artists since i've been doing this you know that's the problem i have with traditional education is it's just not job focused for artists it's like flighty kind of stuff it's like go experience this so it's like the one hippy dippy area of traditional education but at the end of the day this is a job you know people want you're going to be talking to execs on some level or another execs you're going to be there deciding what they need from you on one level or another whether or not you're talking with them or not they're they're the one making some element of decision that's going to affect the art director and everybody else below them because of mm-hmm. the money people. So, you know, they're going to have desires. They're going to have things that they need you to do. And that's the thing that's kind of missing. And I think it's really cool about what you do. And a lot of these people I see doing mentorships now on Gumroads, which is really awesome. I wish that was around. Yeah, it's really blown up. Yeah, it's great. There was a time when, like, when I started ZBrush Workshops 10 years ago, it's like, I, that was it. I knew of no other online training outs that wasn't monthly subscription that was doing these online classes. That And this is great to see this out there and get that, you know, that stuff there. So what do you think people need to get jobs now? Like, what is the things you're focused on to get them jobs? I really like storytelling. If you can build a scene that speaks volumes about something going on, even though it's a still image, that's everything. Somebody who posted in your community. I forget his name. And he was in the podcast Jeremy with uh, Chris. He had a substance, like a skull and crossbones on a plane. And he had some kind of like gobo of a figure animated projected on there. Does that ring a bell at all? That does not. Dude, I look at so much stuff now. Oh, I believe it. It's a blur. Yeah, but it came along because Chris said the same thing of story. And so it came up like, how do you make a story out of substance designer? materials and oh right there was this, yeah, yeah there was this guy who just put like skull crossbones substance designer material and then he had like this weird shadowy dude projected onto it and it looked really cool and you had a story boom oh yes i remember this now yes yes yeah, see i remember i remember it now that you're starting to describe it the shadowy uh-huh. figure yep like cements it in your mind so yeah. it's it that's the story element right and mm-hmm. uh yeah when it comes to substance materials as well as propping, I like to think about a space as like, okay, you need to have a story here, right? But propping a scene or materials, if you want to put a story there, maybe narrative team doesn't have the story yet, or you don't know what you want to have as a story, but you know you want to have maybe like a garage scene with like a bunch of tools. So you know which way to go. So you build that scene. If you think about it in real life, stories happen in spaces that exist. So you can build a scene like a garage with like workshop tools, and add the story later you can layer that on top and then that adds so much because it, it tells you the story tells you where props could be or why something is where it's at everything starts to have like a reason or a meaning behind why it's where it is and everything looks so much more intentional because of it and then i i actually get to see how you're thinking by the way you've placed props mm-hmm. because of the story you're trying to tell that's why storytelling is is big the second thing I would say is probably just making sure that the scale of your assets is accurate. So you want to make sure a stool can fit under a table, right? If it looks like they don't mesh together, mm-hmm. then I, I, have a, I immediately have this issue <laughs> with where the, where the artist is coming from. Like, are, do they not realize like, that that soda can is like, like a paint can size? The scale is super important. 
And I saw the other day on your stream, you were learning Blender. Oh yeah. That's another endeavor that's just recently started to occur. The thing that caught me about that, that I thought was really kind of cool was you're just on that stream learning. It's not like you're showing off. It's not like you got something to present and it's just, you know, you're on the stream and you're like, and people are telling you what to do and you, you know what to do. And you know, there's a back and forth, like remember that button and all that stuff. Yeah. uh, (laughs) It's like you're, it's like you're in a lab in a, in a school and people are around you. That's yeah. It feels, it feels good, man. Cause like the main reason I'm doing it that way is obviously I don't have too much time outside of like when I'm not streaming, I'm not doing art at home because there's just, there's too many things going on. So when I'm streaming, that's when I'm, I'm doing art. And so if I want to learn Blender, it's going to happen on stream. And so the exciting part about that is you get to see that a person with 12 years of industry experience is like a human, (laughs) like we're human. (laughs) Like, I don't care how long I've been in games. Like when you do something that you're not used to, you're going to look dumb (laughs) and it's okay. Uh Uh-huh. That's great. Yeah. Does that affect your ability to create? Because I had a similar thing myself, like where I could only, I, I was starting my business and, and it was just like, I was crazy busy with students and I was crazy busy. And the only time I had to actually create my own artwork, if I wasn't teaching or helping another artist teach was while I was teaching the students something. Like I could pick some classes where I could go in and actually just sculpt my own stuff. But at a certain point that started to weigh me down and the critic and I, you know, some of the work just needed me to go deeper than I could in a half hour, hour long session. Yeah, I I get that for sure. There are definitely issues where like I can't go as far as I want to go because Mm -hmm. I only got two hours and then that's only on Mondays. So on, on Thursdays, it's four portfolio reviews that have to happen inside of an hour and then an hour of discord critiques. So like I'm only doing personal art for maybe two hours a week. So it's the window is very small. And so by uh, doing something like learning Blender, I feel like I'm improving something that I want to do. Yeah. And then at the same time, we've got people that are that are in that chat or in the stream that weren't doing 3D like a few months ago. And now mm-hmm. because I'm streaming Blender, they can follow along and they're learning a whole lot more like at an accelerated pace because right. it's like they're experiencing it with me in real time. Like that's just crazy to me. We've talked a little bit about what you think people need to do. And you said, make sure they create story. One of the things you like about the changes in our industry is, you know, you don't really have to chase tools. It really is more about the art itself. But along those lines, and you said uh, AAA, you don't do a lot of propping in AAA, but sometimes that's maybe a junior position for somebody as they're kind of building their career to get to where you are. So my question is kind of along those lines, like what do people need to have in their portfolio? Because a lot of times when I interview people, yourself, Chris, there's the emphasis on story and you guys have all created like large environments, but sometimes people are just starting out there. Yeah, that can be pretty daunting. Yeah, they're not even, they're not there. It'll take them three to four months to create an environment. Right. Yeah, I mean, so I would say start an art station, right? Even if you're just getting started. I mean, if you're uncomfortable posting in there, the goal is to have a community to go to that you can post in. And when people start reacting to it really well, then you start posting it in your on your art station. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say starting with props is probably the best because that forces you to work on the fidelity and the detail yeah. of like a, a single asset, which is much easier to approach than an entire environment. Let's say you do a prop, I don't know, when you're first starting, maybe a prop a month. And then if you can go faster than that, start mm-hmm. 
you know, scaling it down to like, see if you can do a prop in three weeks or two weeks. And when I say do a prop, I mean, just model it. Don't worry about texturing, just execute on creating the asset, like recreating the asset in 3D. So you're looking at reference, recreating it and repeating that over and over. Then you start learning about materials, get that onto your assets and then start posting that on your art station. So I would say start with props. The end package is, is like a fully textured, either in Marmoset or Substance Painter, an end result asset. Once you're comfortable doing that, I think moving on to environments is probably the next big thing. Now, this is if you want to be an environment artist. If you don't want to be an environment artist and you just want to be a prop artist, then you just keep making props. And you just make sure that they're accurate, the scale is, is good, and the materials are really interesting to look at. But if you want to be an environment artist, that's when it starts to get a little complicated, right? Because you're now you're managing composition. You have to build a larger scene, which requires a lot of props, tends to require you to understand lighting and composition, like I was saying, and interesting angles and just making a scene. And then, like I was saying, with story and yeah, it just goes on and on. And that scares people. If I had to give a suggestion for that transition from props to environments, I would suggest continue making props, but props that are related to each other. So like the garage scene I was talking about, maybe you start to make props that would be in like a mechanics garage. Right. So you're not worrying about the scene. You're just looking at the props. And as you make that library of props, then you're like, oh, maybe I'll make a table. And now you have a table to put your props on. Then you, you just need a wall. And it's totally okay if it's like a brick wall that is just downloaded from a website that offers either free materials or you were able to buy, that's acceptable because you're trying to ease the struggle of <laughs> building your first environment. Mm -hmm. And even today, like that's totally okay to be using like, like I buy Josh Lynch materials if I could and yeah. put those on my walls because I don't want to have to deal with walls. I want to deal with like the composition and the layout and telling stories and stuff. But yeah, I think starting with props and then the transition into environments is through uh, props that are related to each other. And then just start putting them in a scene together and you basically have an environment. And there's also dioramas that you could do if you want right. to keep it contained and small. I want to look at Nicholas's work because he kind of represents one of the, a part of that question. So Nicholas just got a job over at ZeniMax. Oh, nice. And uh, so here's this project he's been on. He's like, I'm still going to finish this project. I'm like, go, dude, you're done with the, pro the project. Got you a job. Just chill. Go, go, go home and. Relax. Oh, dude. Yeah, I have I have some comments on that when when we're uh, yeah, when we transition. No, feel feel free. What are you What are your thoughts on that? Uh, okay. Or what? So we actually talked about this on stream recently as mm -hmm. well. So you have this drive to keep pushing to make a sick portfolio, and you keep yeah. pushing, and you're working really hard. And then you get a job, right? Maybe you get an art test, you pass the art test, you work really hard on that as well. Mm -hmm. Pass the interview, you get the job. Now you're at the studio. There's this mentality, it's in everyone, I had it as well, to prove yourself. You have to keep pushing. Mm -hmm. You have to maintain this, this speed that you had when you were outside of the industry. And you have to remember that you passed the art test. They even, they're offering you money now you've actually achieved, you've proven yourself already, and that's why they want you there. And so I would strongly suggest, at least for the first six months, to try and get back to a normalcy of relaxing when you get home, hanging out with friends, going out for a drink, playing games. It's really important to 
reward yourself for the hard work of actually getting in because it can be real difficult for some people. And that difficulty makes it even worse once you're in. Mm -hmm. What if they find out I'm a fraud? (laughs) Oh, man. So wait, you're saying like, say I got in and I feel like I feel like I'm a fraud. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, isn't that kind of part of what happens there is we get in, we get a job. We're like, I don't know how I got this because, you know, I've been turned down 20,000 times, you know, and now finally somebody said yes. And um, I got to prove myself so they don't so they don't realize, you know, who I really am. That's the hard part. That's the hard part is you have to break that yourself. I don't know if anyone can convince you otherwise other than yourself. Yeah, because it's difficult, man. Yeah, it's difficult. I remember like it. It's what causes new people to go into overtime so easily is they just want to, they want to be the best. They want to push themselves. It's like, dude, you're, you're now like, no matter what studio you're at, that everyone around you, they're always going to be better than you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's just how it is. And instead of worrying about, I'm not good enough, like turn the focus towards exposing yourself to everything that's around you, because all that'll happen is you'll get better and better. And you'll always surround yourself with people that you find are um, inspiring and can push you to the next level. And just don't don't worry about the fact is because we all I mean, I'll straight up say we all suck. (laughs) We all suck. And that's just how it is. And we just get better and better. But we'll always be in a, a crappier position if there's someone above us. If we look at it that way, the person above you should be inspiring you to push yourself upwards not making you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think Edison's actually a really good case in point for this, for where this question is going. Because for me, Edison is, is there, he's ready. He's got what it takes. I mean, now he's getting into speed tree and, you know, he's done props here. Let me just go over to Edison's um, art station. There we go. And, uh, you know, for me, I look at this, I'm like, Edison's got like, he's got the skills. Yeah, so this looks good. How do you shake the tree? Tell us how long it's and how do you shake the tree and tell people they're ready, you know, or get them to see that, you know, it's like you could go and you could learn forever. Cause I think that's what I heard you say is you could just be there learning forever and ever. And you can always see somebody who's better and something else you got to learn, but you got to stop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing too, is it doesn't really stop and you just have to accept that you're either learning and you're not learning, but whenever you pick it back up, you're learning again. Fair enough. But how do and you being, how do you being in work, yourself, you're always learning as well. How do you give yourself permission to just be like, okay, I'm ready to apply? You know, what do you say to people who are like, I got to wait, I'm not ready yet. If they don't think they're ready, and I, I'm saying they're ready, if they, if they can't hear that someone with, uh, man, it sounds weird to say it like that, someone with my experience to say you're ready, and then for you not to hear that just means that you're having a hard time accepting. <laughs> And it's just like, we need to get you into a community where everyone's shouting, you need to apply to this place. You need to apply to this place. Cause like, I like that you, it's the community, right? They, mm-hmm. again, the community pushes you to uh, outside of your comfort zone. And maybe that outside of your comfort zones, like applying to studios. Cause at some point you actually have to start learning how to do interviews as well. Right. Yeah. And the art tests doing a bunch of those. Yeah, man. I hate uh, art tests. <laughs> Why does our industry do that? I mean, a friend of mine, Melissa, she's a sucker punch. She was at Naughty Dog for 10 years. Like 10 years, she had to do two art tests. What? Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, art tests are weird. I feel like art tests need to be a tool that you use when their portfolio is not answering the question. Mm -hmm. But if you look at their portfolio, it's either it works, it doesn't work, or 
you just want to check one thing and you should have an art test that very specifically checks the one thing because like art tests burn people man and then you might not even get the job and then it's like what the hell <laughs> yeah that was a month like i saw naughty dogs art test that does i mean jesus you know yeah one's pretty classic at this point yeah that's intense all right mark's got a question he's saying uh, i'm working on unity interactive vr he's got a lot of props you know wants to create an awesome environment any tips for somebody who's wanting to texture a lot of props terrain in an efficient way and i know that's hugely open-ended so just however it hits you is fine i don't really have very much experience with vr but i assume that vr is slightly budgeted i mean mm -hmm. epic kind of showed us that it's not too tough mm -hmm. but with their uh what was that the robot game the vr robot shooting game forget what it's called mm -hmm. anyways visually that game is stunning so i think vr is where it's at as long as you've got the beast computer when it comes to props i think keeping your draw calls down is important and i, I don't know how familiar people are with draw calls. So if you've got an asset that's got five shaders on it and it's like five meshes to make the prop, that's that would be five draw calls. Mm -hmm. If you can get everything on one material and it's all happening on one mesh for that prop, that's one draw call. So keeping your draw calls down will help. And then tileable materials on the terrain is uh, probably the way to go. I guess it's it's keeping the shaders not too complex. So you probably don't want to be doing uh, blending like material blending. See, then again, though, I don't know VR very much. Maybe it can support it. Maybe the decals. maybe it's not as expensive. Yeah, see, I don't know how expensive decals are for VR. VR let's is a, assume, a different beast for me. Let's just assume, you know, general games. If you wanted to do these things quickly, decals is tileable terrain, and then you can throw decals and props and... Definitely, yeah. Set dress Yeah, decals so are amazing. Covers. So it's, it. it's like being able to break up a tileable material with a few decals goes a much longer way than trying to solve how to make the terrain look unique while still using tileables. And uh, detail normals. I was recently talking oh. about that on the stream as well. Detail normals yeah. are insanely useful. Okay. And they should be on everything. And that's just another normal <laughs> map that's tiling at like a higher frequency so that when you get close to a prop, the material's surface kind of holds up. Yeah. So if it's like metal, when you get really close to it, even though it's maybe say it's shiny metal, it's mm -hmm. quite reflective, you get up close to it and there's scratches in it, those yep. scratches could be a detail normal, which is tiling quite high. So then those scratches, even though it's like right in front of your face, is like is holding up the fidelity, even though the main normal map has now gotten really low res because it's so close to the camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, detail Tony, normals, man. Tony, just uh, <laughs> just Google, um, what would be a good Google for somebody to learn decals? You can do texturing decals. Uh, do you have a quick explanation for decals? I mean, really just alphas something projected um, on the surface yeah it's it can be either a projected decal which is like it's like imagine taking an image and, and projecting it directly onto the assets that it comes in contact with mm -hmm. so that would be great for if you needed to do graffiti on a brick wall and there's yeah. pipes in the way the graffiti will kind of wrap itself around the pipes as well and then there's mesh decals which are same solution but instead of it projecting it's just on like say a card for example i think star citizen is probably a good example of uh, mesh decals being used really intensely and, and well. Those guys are using it a lot. So they're actually not even doing very much normal map baking of the actual ships themselves. They're just placing a ton of decals and beveling their ships to oh, hold their, the way to normals. Yeah. Ah, I'll have to look that up. I didn't know that. I know a couple of people work there. Okay. What's the UV budget for a prop? Oh, that's interesting. It depends how big the prop is. You mean real world scale? Size, how big? Yeah. like. 
physical size. So like for buildings, for example, if you're doing a modular building, mm-hmm. a building piece will have its UV set that is for texel density. Yeah. So it's to maintain the resolution across the entire asset. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the second UV set is for either light maps or any unique packed mask properties that you want to apply to the surface of, of mm-hmm. that said piece. So your AOs would go in there, your unique normal bakes would go in there and any masks. So like roughness variation or brightness or saturation changes can happen in that as well. So I would say on average, it's two when it gets big like that. Your average prop has just one UV set. And if there's light maps, a second UV set. Cool. All right. Well, Jeremy, man, thank you so much for coming in. And uh, third time was a charm. So that's great. (laughs) Yeah, dude. Thanks for being patient. You know, I appreciate this. I really do. And I love all the stuff you're doing. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks, dude. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.